0: Hello, I'm Theo van den Brucker. Welcome to a very special episode of The Edge, a podcast by Tag Heuer. It's the season three finale, and to wrap up what has been another incredible series, we've put together some of our favourite snippets, featuring our exceptional guests. We had the pleasure of speaking to teen swimming sensation Summer McIntosh, who told us about her extraordinary gold medal-winning feats. Stuntman and stunt coordinator Riley Harper walked us through the thrills of being a stuntman, we also caught up with racing driver Alexander Rossi, who recounted his victory at the 100th running of the Indianapolis 500 as a rookie. And tennis ace Petra Kvitova uncovered the secrets of her long-lasting career. We've had so many remarkable guests this season, like Roberto Lacorte the man behind the ambitious Flying Nika Sailing Project, and the trailblazing president of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, Douglas Bowles. To mark the 100th 24 Hours of Le Mans, we also chatted with Urs Karatle, the director of Porsche Motorsport LDMH Factory Racing, former FIA endurance champion, Mark Lieb, and the talented Porsche works driver, Joshua Rogers. If that wasn't enough, we also spoke to the fastest man in the world right now, Fred Curley, as well as Formula E drivers, Pascal Verlain and Antonio Felix da Costa. Each of these guests left us feeling inspired. So a big thank you to all of them. Now let's put this time machine in reverse and enjoy the best of season three. This is The Edge a podcast by Tag Hoyer. Let's begin with Summer McIntosh, who tells us about the moment she seized her fourth gold medal, life lessons that she's learned along the way, and how to develop a winning mentality.
1: To win that fourth gold medal, I mean, I think it was a really surreal moment. It feels like I just won um, my first one back in 2022. And just to kind of have that moment again and have my family in the stands and know that all my friends and family have been cheering me on since I started the sport of swimming, is it was a really nice moment to share. And if I told my seven-year-old self, this is where I'd be today, I'd just be so happy with what I've been able to achieve this far. So I think going into each race, no matter if it's my best race or my worst race, I definitely have confidence. And I think that all kind of stems from my training. But before my race, I don't try to think too much about the time I want to go or record or placement that I want. I mean, obviously, everyone diving into the pool wants to win, but it matters who wants it the most and who's worked for it the most. So that's what I try to kind of keep telling myself is as long as I keep training as hard as possible and prove as much as possible, that's all I can really control. And you can't control what others do. So Just trying to focus on myself heading into those big races is what kind of keeps me in the moment. It keeps me being able to perform at my highest. Even though I started off at such a young age, I think at quite a high level, like making the Olympic team at 14, I think I'm just so grateful that I was able to experience those things at such a young age because it taught me so many young, so many life lessons that I never would have had if I weren't to be in the situation I am today, and even though I've already achieved things like four gold medals at a World Championships, I'm always shooting for more and always trying to improve as much as possible as a person in and out of the pool. In the moment, each time I've touched the wall and got either on the podium or got a gold medal at the at the World Aquatics Championships, I think it's always just kind of a disbelief moment for me, but at the same time, it feels so real. Um, and I just get super overjoyed and happy. I mean, I'm not an over-expressor person. I mean, some some will celebrate and sit on the lane rope, but that's just not me. That's not a personal thing to me. Um, obviously, I respect that, but that's how I feel on the inside. I just don't usually show that on the outside. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's always just such a cool moment to be able to represent my country at, the, at such a high stage in the world, and to do it in front of a bunch of fans is also really cool. Ever since a young age, I've always really loved just being in the water because I feel like, I've heard this from a lot of other swimmers, it's just kind of their kind of meditation time. You feel very, as you can't really hear anything when your head's submerged um, and you have lots of time to think, especially during practice. And it just kind of is a very calming experience. Even when I'm not training, if I'm swimming or like in a, in a lake or an ocean, like in Florida. I mean, it's, it's always a good time. And I don't know, I've always loved water ever, ever since a young age, um, no matter what I was, where I'm, where I'm, what level I'm doing it at, whether if, if it's for training or just for, for leisure.
0: Next up, stuntman and stunt coordinator, Riley Harper. Riley took us behind the scenes, explaining the emotions and the craft behind demanding stunts
2: demanding stunts for me there's there's two categories of those there's mentally demanding which is for instance something that is something that i've done my whole life like riding a motorcycle and there's a very specific thing you have to do which is go down this mountain jump off this ledge land in between these trees and then dodge an explosion and come out the other side If all those factors weren't there, I could do that with my eyes closed almost. But you add in all these factors of a big cliff on one side and all these things that can play into ruining what you have to do, basically. And those for me are the most mentally demanding because there's such high consequence of getting hurt or dying on a lot of these. And you really have to grasp your mind of what's going on and just do the feet that you have in front of you. And then there's the really physically demanding ones that could be a very simple task, whether it's, you know, being on a, on a cable and getting flung across a room and hit the ground and roll 10 feet. And you know it's going to hurt no matter what, and it's just the act of trying to make it not hurt as much as possible and having to do that potentially three, five, ten times waiting for everyone to get the shot as they want, you know, that's that's the stuff that's very physically demanding, that is the repetition of doing multiple shots that really just wears on you, you know. Golden Arc for being a stuntman is is just your general trajectory, I feel like. Everyone has different paths, you know, and within the stunt industry as a whole there's so many different avenues nowadays. When I was growing up and when I was young, my dad and, and everyone in that that era of stunts you really had to do every single aspect of stunts you had to be really good at everything or else you just you couldn't work you know you'd be on set in the 70s and 80s and you had to be able to at the drop of a hat kind of do anything nowadays there's a lot of very specific niche genres within stunts you know a lot of people stick to their genre what they're great at And I I always try to stick with the original of trying to be great at everything. And so for me, it was always trying to do as many things as possible within stunts and kind of having my own personal bucket list of things I want to accomplish, whether it's flipping a car or crashing a motorcycle or doing a huge jump on a motorcycle or doing a fire burn or a high fall or a car hit, you know, all these different aspects of kind of big stunts to me. So my personal arc was always just kind of working with great people first and foremost and being in cool locations and having a lot of fun, but trying to kind of check off my personal list of, of accomplishments. Every job is is challenging for sure, and every job has its own its own challenges in every aspect. But for me the one of the biggest challenges is just being gone and not being home and being you know living somewhere new all the time and always being surrounded by the same people in the same environment and it's really fun in that aspect but it's also kind of you know tiring you want to be home you want to be with your family or your friends and like that whole side of it is always challenging but I would say individual jobs um, and just really demanding ones there's one uh, Point Break which is a really bad remake of the original Point Break and we shot that in Austria. And in that sequence, we shot all of the motorcycle and car sequences for the movie, or majority of them, I should say. And that show, for instance, like every day, there was such high consequence of getting severely hurt, which I did, multi- I dislocated my shoulder and tumbled down a mountain that was, I don't even know how long, but on a motorcycle riding through very steep canyons with trees on each side and any little wrongdoing you could get really badly hurt and also for some of the car sequences you know flipping cars on purpose a thing called a pipe ramp where you basically hit a pipe that is angled like a ramp and it flips the car on purpose and you tumble down the road and and we did that and there was probably a thousand foot cliff on our right on a little two-lane road with no barriers or anything to like keep you from going over the edge and That job just comes to mind as being an extremely... Every day, you had to be so on top of your game and just on top of it to make sure you don't make any small mistake because there's such a high consequence, you know?
0: Alexander Rossi is the man who won the historic 100th running of the Indianapolis 500 as a rookie. We were lucky enough to speak to him about his iconic win and how that moment shaped his career.
3: When I say that, I remember two things vividly from that day. One was the morning of, um, because I had never—I was a rookie, so obviously I never participated. But I never attended an Indy five hundred before, so my world was kind of was was blown away by everything that takes place, um, kind of between the hours of nine a.m. to noon when when the race starts. Um, and we're at this facility, kind of practicing and qualifying for an entire month leading up to the 500 which is at the end of May and it's the first time that you actually see the place full of people and it's it's the one moment I think in you know my life where you felt like you were kind of a like a rock star I guess is the easiest way to put it you know there was there was just so much kind of fanfare and excitement around you know you as being one of thirty three drivers that were that were participating that day and um you know i've i have been fortunate enough to 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 race in some amazing events around the world, and none of them really quite matched the level of the five hundred so for me even if i didn't you know if i wasn't the lucky one to win that day, I still would have walked away from my first five hundred you know falling in love with the event and uh wanting to come back for more in twenty sixteen you know i didn't know any better you know I just went into it and Kind of my only expectation and my only goal was to to finish the race. You know, it was my first 500 mile race. It was my second race that I was ever gonna do um, on an oval. And so I went into it probably with a, a lot of um, naivety and I was pretty relaxed compared to everyone else just because i didn't I didn't really know the significance of the event. Now that you know I'm seven going on eight years removed um from from that day you know it's hard not to kind of get I guess enamored with with what this race means and and your desire to win it right so you have to treat it like any other race because ultimately that's all that it is it's just another IndyCar race just there's more people watching but ultimately everything else is the same and you have to 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 perform at your best you can't really get caught up in the moment but at the same time you know you're you, you you have to remind yourself of of the position that you're in and how fortunate you are to be one of 33 racing drivers in the world that gets to do this race and so you have to enjoy it still so it's it's kind of finding that balance between just going out there and who cares it's another racetrack with another race car and you just got to go win to kind of taking in the experience and enjoying it because you only you only get so many of these for me that day let's see um one of the traditions here is like a bomb goes off at 6 a.m to signal that that the gates are opening so that wakes you up and then you know you kind of have your coffee, your breakfast, whatever, and then we would always go and watch the Monaco Grand Prix, because um, that would be on kind of at the same time that we would be kind of just sitting around doing nothing. So you'd watch that, and you kind of watch that with your team and teammates, and you'd be in the engineering room, and there was this, like, as every kind of 30 minutes passed, getting closer to race time, like the everyone got quieter and the anxiety level kind of starts to go up. Um, so the race is just a nice way to, to kind of think about something else. Um, so you'd watch Monaco and then you kind of have your final discussions with your engineers. So the big thing about the day of Indianapolis or, or of the Indy 500 is you're trying to choose a, a downforce level. So what that means is because it's noble, um, you know, the, the least amount of downforce, that you can run and still be full throttle for the entire lap is obviously better because less downforce is less drag and and a faster speed but the problem is this track um, because the speeds are so high is very very sensitive to wind um, to wind speed to wind direction also to um, the track and the ambient temperature so you're like trying to predict exactly like what the wind gusts are going to be in a couple hours and what the the track temp's is going to be. And then you're trying to choose a final downforce level that you're going to race with. Um, so that's kind of your your last big decision that you have to make. And then about an hour and 15 minutes before um, the, the race starts, you kind of go all the drivers gather together in basically a green room. And you then go out. So in Indy, it's 11 rows of three. So they start with the last row of three and, and work their way forward. And they do these driver introductions. And that's an, on the front straight in front of, you know, I think 130,000 people sit on the front straight. And then they kind of do like a, a group photo. And then it's the first, the first race before the race is everyone then there's like there's two restrooms that like, you have access to so all 33 people like rush to these two restrooms um, to do what they need to do and then you kind of make your way back out to the grid um and then that's when kind of all of the pageantry of the 500 starts finally here's petra
0: kvitova telling us about one of her career highlights at the miami open she also gave us an insight into what it takes to sustain a long-lasting career
4: My highlight of the season was uh, definitely Miami Open. That's uh, for sure the biggest title uh, of the season. I, I won a title in Berlin as well on, on my favorite grass. Uh, so it was a great one too, because some friends came. It was pretty close to Prague, so uh, they came to watch. So it was like totally different. But uh, Miami Open was the highest one. It was amazing uh, tournament. I have to say that I already started play well in Indian Wells when I reached the quarterfinal and I played very good tennis. And um, the Miami Open, I never like liked it that much because there is a lot of humidity and I have asthma. So for me, it's always pretty tough to play there in the conditions. And um, was uh, I just played like round by round and... Uh, I didn't really think that I can go that far, uh, even to the semifinals or whatever, but uh, lucky me probably. When I'm playing longer in the tournaments, I play a better, so <laughs> that's always good, good to have and that's what I probably showed in the, in the Miami Open. one tournament finished with the title and going to the next one it's totally different story it's it's different conditions different courts sometimes different balls different players in the draw and so so i think yes when you're playing well of course that you're gonna have a bigger confidence but on the other side everybody wants to beat you especially being in top 10 it's something which you are a target for everybody and everybody wants to beat you uh, when you win a Grand Slam. It's the same thing. So I think <laughs> it's really, it's both sides. And, and the tennis is tough in it because we have just one year to define all the points from the previous year. So I think it's, it's really pressuring all the time so when you win a title the next year you have to defend it so (laughs) it's like it's great to win a title but on the other side next year it's like uh oh okay this and this points it's here okay let's let's see i always thought that i'm gonna lose so (laughs) it's always a big surprise if i win i i'm not the one who has too much confident and you know, thinking that uh, okay, I'm gonna win this tournament and, and so uh, so I never have this mentality. It's it's my mentality and everybody has a different kind of, of it. Um, yeah. United Cup was a great even. I really enjoyed it. I loved team competitions and especially with the men combined was uh, something something else a different level and I really enjoyed it. Um, so it was a great start even I played great tennis over there and uh, I I felt pretty well but unfortunately the Austrian Open didn't um, go the way I, I wanted. I lost in the second round but I um, I think overall, the beginning of the season wasn't that bad. It's always tough when you lose, uh, especially at the Grand Slam and beginning of the Grand Slam. Um, and because I played pretty good tennis before, I probably, you know, thought that I will go a little bit forward. But sometimes the draw, it's it's tougher, you know, the nerves and everything, it's, it wasn't my day. But I was pretty, like, upset after the l- loss. And uh, I went home and... Uh, you know, trying to forget and, and focus on the next tournaments, which uh, I had in Dubai. And uh, that's always probably the right mindset that you need to focus what it's next. That's good in tennis, that you have always chance the next week. I think it's every week challenge of the season, but for me probably it was every day going to the practice, actually, because, you know... I'm 33 and I'm doing it since i am in 16, traveling, playing tennis since I've been four. And, you know, every day going for the practice, it's, it's a routine. It's something which you are not even thinking. But on the other hand, I think it's, uh, it was a big challenge this year.
0: That's a wrap on season three of The Edge. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear from more extraordinary visionaries, athletes or artists, Stay tuned for season four, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed listening to us, don't forget to subscribe and leave us five stars. It does make a difference. You can also head over to The Edge, our Tag Heuer magazine, to discover more stories, interviews and news about the latest Tag Heuer timepieces. We'll drop the link in our show notes. Thank you to all our amazing guests for joining us. We'll be back soon with another season of The Edge, a podcast by Tag Heuer. See you soon.